Namaste. So as part of the writings of Shurabinda series, today we take up Collected Works of Shurabinda Volume 19, which is Essays on the Gita. And we know that there were two series written. One was from 1914 to 1916, or 19, uh, 1916 to 1918. And the second was next series, which is 1918 to 1920. And um, this was published in in two at two places in 1922 it was published as a single book which was mainly the first series and then in 1928 a very much revised version came out as a single book both first and second series and that's what we have today so it's not exactly a reproduction of the aria none of the books are because many of them have been revised subsequently um Having said that, a uh, few things about the book. It's not like a sloka to sloka translation, not a translation. There are some uh, 200 plus commentaries on the Gita in Sanskrit only. So we can imagine how many commentaries and slokas exist. And uh, there are two types of uh, things, books which have been written in the, on the Gita. One is which are translations. You pick up sloka and translate, pick up a sloka and translate. And the second is where it is like a free-flowing commentary. So, essays on the Gita belongs to the latter type where there are essays on the Gita. But there is something very beautiful about the book, marvelous I would say, that though Shurabindu is not translating one sloka and you know giving its meaning, yet all the slokas are covered there. You can find every sloka and you can literally you know even place its meaning. So, which is something very amazing. Because obviously, Shurabindu was not sitting with the book and you know writing essays, but they are free-flowing essays. Second thing unique about the book is that unlike many commentators, Shurabindu had a living, real contact and guidance leading ultimately to complete unity and identification with Sri Krishna of the um, avatar, Sri Krishna the avatar. So this, these essays are of a very different kind. Than the many of the commentators, many are not even you know mystics. Like particularly, I must say about Gandhi's commentary, uh, M.K. Gandhi's commentary. So that's uh, he was not even a mystic. So it's very different. Here it is a living contact. Shobindo's contact with Sri Krishna uh, starts even before he has gone to the Alipur jail, and then it continues till 1926, where there is a complete identification. So these commentaries are of a very, very different kind. And even when they have been revised eventually and published in 1928, so they have a great meaning because the complete identification took place in 1926. So uh, we may literally say that it is Sri Krishna writing the Gita himself. Um, there are several versions of the Gita we know that, uh, like the second Gita, they are basically Sri Krishna's um, words shared with different set of people. Uh, for instance, there is a Gita which Sri Krishna expounds in the court room, court room of Yudhishthir when they ask him again to speak the truths that he had expounded. Then there is a Gita which is in the form of a dialogue between Draupadi and Sri Krishna. Then there is a Gita which is dialogue between Sri Krishna and Uthav. So Gita literally means a song and it is song of the divine. So it is the Gita. But this is the one which is most important, the most authentic also. 
and it appears in the bhishma parv which is the book 6 of the mahabharata um, just before the armies confront each other and arjuna asks sri krishna that take me to the middle of the battlefield i want to see who are these people against whom i have to fight and shubindu sticks off from there uh, very beautifully says that uh, this geeta people have a tendency to either explain the geeta on the basis of uh, as if it's a whole symbolic story and the pe- people who have even given it a completely non violent interpretation well the geeta is neither about non violence nor violence let's be very clear upon that it's about divine action and whatever it requires for the divine Uh, to act upon earth that he does according to the divine will when somebody asked shurbindo what are your plans later on when he was in pondicherry would you come back to the political field he said well chances are very less likely but i don't make plans anyways i go by what the divine will dictates that's the essence of the geeta so geeta is not a mental principle of action like some people make it a duty which is sacred you must do the gita is doing nothing of that kind it is in fact liberating us from all the dogmas all the mental standards all the human ideas and ideals including the highest which is satvik ideal it is beyond morality and ethics gita's whole crux is that act according to the divine will in one word and all the chapters are essentially to prepare ourselves to act according to the divine will how to receive the divine will people often ask how to know the divine will well read the gita uh, practice the gita reading is not enough of course and the second aspect of the gita is because it's a very wide catholic and many sided scripture there is a tendency for one sided interpretations so often people have interpreted the gita only as a gospel of bhakti or only as a gospel of karma or as gyana i have even read somebody writing that is the same practice as is given in vipassana why because the gita speaks about the sankhi yoga where you detach yourself turn inward and upward but it's very easy to bring one side of the gita and make it prominent but the yoga of the gita is an integral yoga by its very nature the third thing that shurvind reminds us which is uh, so important about the gita is the vishrup darshan Uh, scriptures don't contain it there are scriptures which have hinted for instance in rigveda we'll find a description of the purush in the purushukta there are places where it is hinted but in the gita the way it comes out god revealing himself it's not rishi in his soul sees something so there is yet a difference the soul of the rishi in a certain magnificent moment has a vision of that splendor like you have nilrudra upanishad where there is a description of shiva <laughs> so the soul in a ecstatic moment uh, has that revelation but here it is the divine who reveals himself saying that look you cannot see me nobody can see me with the ordinary eyes even subtle vision is not enough to see me but i'll grant you this vision because i love you and you are my you know companion for the battle of the ages so this revelation is very different from many other uh, you know some places some experiences realizations and revelations that people had of the divine the fourth unique thing about the gita and shurbindo makes it uh, very clear the gita itself says that the gita gives three secrets and one of them is that god's own example as the avatar and shurbindo emphasizes upon it and this is a 
interesting side of Indian mystic tradition, which we often miss. So we will see one is about philosophy, what he said. And the other is how he lived. So if you read uh, these two aspects, you will see that how God lived. You know, there is a very, you read the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. It's much about Sri Ramakrishna's exposition of um, the truths he had discovered and very beautiful one one of the most beautiful books uh, ever spoken but you read another book which is they lived with God so these are the first 16 disciples of Sri Ramakrishna and they describe about Sri Ramakrishna's life this is something very unparalleled because you get to understand from a different perspective same thing with when we read about Shirobindo, I often suggest to people read 12 years with Shirobindo, read Shirobindo, his life unique, read Mother's biography, Mother and Shirobindo's biography, of course, written with that um, inner sense. And you will then understand what the yoga is about. Otherwise, it's easy to get caught into one. People often read a you know, uh, quote here, a quote there, sometimes mix and match, sometimes misquotes. Sometimes one book, sometimes one aspect and it's very easy to erect a whole system of yoga based on just one-sided understanding of Shurabindo's uh, yoga. But if you read his life, if you read the mother's life, then you get a different picture, then you get a total picture. So the Gita's yoga by its nature is integral and not one-sided and there is a great emphasis on God's own example. And most importantly, Shurabindo again reminds us about the avatarhood. I have seen commentaries of the Gita where somehow this aspect is not uh, really as if people shy away because you know many modern commentators, um, it's a religious doctrine. Somebody is declaring that he is God and he is saying that you know I am the one who will liberate you from all sin and evil, do not grieve. So modern mind tends to little bit shy away from this. So there are people who speak about, uh, they have written modern books on the Gita and it's perfectly fine where they teach us principles of action, how one can act in the world, all that is fine. But it misses the soul of the Gita and the soul of the Gita is none else but Sri Krishna. So Shubhinda gives us, uh, explains to us, he sets the note in the very first series, in the very first few chapters. One is, he says, the Gita, unlike many scriptures, or rather he says every scripture has two aspects. One is temporal, which is subject to time. So there are certain scriptures where there is an injunction, uh, do this way, act this way, wear a particular kind of dress. Uh, for example, you know, there are certain kinds of dress which may be more suited in a particular land. When you see, for instance, desert lands of Arabia, so you'll see many of these sheikhs, they wear white, full white, um, you know, gown and also their head is covered and they will put even a black, <laughs> you know, ring to hold it in place. Now, it is very good because in that desert land where it's so hot, this is the best dress you can wear to save yourself from heat strokes. You know, and many times even that hijab and all, it's, it's part of that, it's understandable there. But when you do it here, it is like, you know, you impose wearing tie in Indian settings and tie and boot and uh, socks and go for a party because it's, it's alright in England where you, you know, where you, you wear a coat and you wear a tie because it's so cold. But when you do it in India, it sounds that you are just being foolish. 
So this is how there are temporal elements in a scripture. For instance, it is said you pray at this time, that way, this way. So this is one part. And there are eternal truths in a scripture. Eternal truths are, you know, or take for instance Sikhism. There are eternal truths. The very first sloka that is there in Guru Bani is eternal truths. There is one without a second. You will feel you are reading the Vedas. He is free of fear. He is free of stain. You will feel Isha Upanishad one. Sloka is being read. But today's Sikhism is identified with Kacha, Kesh, Kripan, Pagdi. So that's not, that's a very temporal thing. It was needed at a point of time. If you have a Pagdi, it's a natural armor for the martial races. Also means to recognize that, okay, uh, you belong to uh, the warrior who are fighting from one side. It's a very practical thing to carry a sword with you because you should be always vigilant for the enemy. But to say that that is the central point is to miss the whole thing. So in the Gita, fortunately, Shobinda says that there is very little which is temporal. All, in fact, Gita liberates us from all that is temporal. To Yajna, it gives an intrinsic meaning. Even to the Vedas, so on one side it says that Vedas are profound truths. On the other side it says Vedavad. Somebody who has realized the truth has only that much um, importance of the Vedas are for him as if you carry a little vessel into the ocean and how much water can you bring. So on one side he is speaking about the Vedic truths which are very profound. On the other side it is liberating us from Vedavad which is merely reading of the scripture and interpreting it and extrapolating it in our life. So, in fact, the Gita goes on to say, which should be the quotes and uh, he uses that even in synthesis of yoga, uh, Shabda Brahmati Vartate, go beyond the word, written or spoken. Meaning thereby realize its truth, which is much greater always. Word is a limitation, a constraint. So, the Gita frees us from all these temporary trappings in which often the uh, spiritual teaching is caught. And then, of course, Shubhinda also reminds us that um, the Gita belongs to the, with all its beauty, magnificent splendor. There are, not everything is there in the Gita. So he makes it very clear that we do not belong to the dawns of the past, but to the nooms of the future. And that is understandable because God in creation moves always forward. Beyond creation, he is the ever same, unchanging, stable basis of everything. But he is not only there, but he also enters creation. The Gita itself speaks about the divine in his three statuses. One is Sharobhav, where he is in the mutable world, ever-changing world. Then Akshar Brahm, where he is the that which doesn't, which is the stable basis of all creation. But beyond the two, he is the Purushottama. The Gita itself speaks about this. So there is this ever-changing world and there too the divine enters and he manifests. And since manifestation is always moving forward. Therefore, Shubhindu reminds us that while Gita is a wonderful scripture, yet, and we must take uh, all that is useful for us, yet we must know that the last uh, verse of the Veda, if I may put it like that, is yet to be written. The last book of God has yet to manifest. So, it is a basis on which we have to build toward the future. And that's what we see with regard to Shurbindo. There are many practices which are very, very similar to the Yoga of the Gita. So much so that if one reads it superficially, one may be inclined to believe that it is the same thing as the Gita. For instance, in Shurbindo's Yoga, there is the integrality. 
So Shubhendu makes clear it's not a yoga meditation alone. It's not a yoga bhakti alone. It is not a yoga works alone. So in the Gita, but again the emphasis is on works. Same thing we find here that there is an emphasis on bhakt, on works. In the Gita, the crowning movement is bhakti, and in Shubhendu's yoga, you will find that if you read through an entire set of writings, you will see the crowning movement is bhakti. Open, surrender yourself to the mother. Comes the last refrain. Even starts with that because just as in the Gita, Arjuna starts with the central surrender. I give myself to you, Shishyasteham Sadhimam. You teach me. So in this yoga also, accept that we surrender to the mother and say, I don't know. I am an ignorant fool. You make me wise if you feel it's necessary. <laughs> Illumine my consciousness, expand my understanding. That's how it starts. And when we have. Apparently grown as wise as we could, <laughs> or as unwise as we could, meaning thereby that we believed that we were wise. So first he has to make us unwise by stripping us of all that <laughs> what we called as knowledge. Then, when we have grown in wisdom, we surrender all this again to the feet of the divine, saying that here is what you have gifted me. Use it for your purposes. So we see something very similar to the Gita. Another very important thing about the Gita is that the Gita is given on the battlefield, and she Aurobindo makes it very clear that it is not just a symbol. Everything in the Gita, from the beginning, if you see it, there is the actual description of the armies. Not just that the two armies were arrayed against each other. There is a description of the warriors who are actually there. When Duryodhana describes in our side, we have Drona, Bhishma, Karna, myself, Kripacharya, Ashwatthama. And uh, who has Bhuri Shrava? All these people. Now, what is their army? It is zero. It starts like that. So there is nothing like it. Just a symbolic tale that you interpret it inside. The Pandavas are my five uh, Karmendriyas, and the Kauravas are my hundred desires. <laughs> okay, we can do that if we like. But the Gita is in real time, and Shurubindo emphasizes on this because the Gita is given in a battlefield. It's not for somebody who wants to run away from life. So, if you want to run away from life and take to an ascetic life, sannyas, and then you try to interpret the Gita, well, all that one can say is that, sir, you may be very good in Sanskrit, but you are not qualified because the Gita is received by a warrior, the soul of man who is engaging with the battle. That is Arjuna. So, Shirobindo, in the very beginning, describes to us who is the divine teacher. He is the divine immanent in man. So, Krishna is still accessible to us if we can. Surrender ourselves like Arjuna, place ourselves in his hands and say, "I really don't know, but I am handing over the reins of my chariot of life. Take it through the ways that you want to take me." Actually, if you look at it, it's a perfect baby cat attitude. Because after once Arjuna has turned and given the reins to Sri Krishna, and the battle starts. Except once or twice, he never questions why you are taking me here, why you are doing this. He leaves it to Sri Krishna. That is what is ultimately the baby cat. If you have, if it takes you through the battlefield, you go through the battlefield. Not once he says you are a magic master. You have shown me the Vishwarup. Everything is you. Why don't you do some magic and stop the battle? He doesn't say that. He says you tell me what I should do. Shoot the arrows. I shoot. On whom? Here is the target. You tell me, and I'll do that. So there is that such a tremendous um, 
you know, this aspect that the divine teacher is within. But why don't we receive the Gita? Often people say that Arjuna was lucky. Arjuna was not lucky. Arjuna was courageous to surrender himself to the divine. And if we don't receive the guidance simply because we are too much caught up in our own mental opinions, viewpoint. And that's why the divine knows when we say, I am surrendering, guide me. He knows the fellow, if I tell him what to do, he will start questioning his butts. <laughs> Which is okay, Arjuna also questions once. But he will keep on doing that all his life. So the divine will say, do as you want to do. That's what in the Gita also at the end he says, Arjuna, I have told you what I had to tell you. Now you do what you feel is best to do. So the divine teacher is within us. And then he describes the human disciple and how the divine relates with the, uh, you know, divine master, the human disciple. So there is, in life, God and man, they are always together. There is not a moment when God is withdrawn from us. But we feel that we cannot experience God, he is veiled. So this is the typical human life where we are pushed by the ego. And because of the ego, the God is veiled. Why doesn't he break through the ego? Shobindo explains. He allows the action to develop in its natural course. Why? Because there is a meaning in that. So we act under the egoism. We go through the fruits, good or bad. But at every critical moment, his hand is felt. Till we reach that grand point where we say, Okay, I have done what I could do till now, but now I am confused. I don't understand. And then we surrender ourselves to Him. The Another aspect interesting about the Gita is it gives us the a very wide principle of action. So Gita is not a book of ethics where it says do this and don't do this. It's not like thou shalt not kill, thou shalt do this, thou shalt do that. There is no such thing. It gives us a principle of action. So it describes through number of chapters what normally determines our action. And there it says that normally we think we are acting. But it's not we. Nature is uh, coloring our minds, coloring our hearts, emotions, coloring our vital, pushing our body to act. And then it describes the three modes, Sattva, Rajas, Tamas, under which human beings act because they are caught up in its web. But the Gita bids us to come out of this cycle. How to come out? It gives a very beautiful path. Out of the three gunas, first practice Satyaguna. Because that is at least something which will save you from the extreme clutch of these two gunas. It's, so first practice Satyaguna. And then you, have, when you have learned to subordinate the ego, when you have learned to subordinate the desire, when you have learned to act according to a trans... Um, Ego standard, if I may use the word. Satugun man doesn't act according to his selfish demands. Rajogun person will act. He has done this to me, I'll act like this. Tamasik gun person will not even act. He will say, whatever is the demand of time, I'll be driven by that. Lazy. But Satugun person will always think, discern, try to understand what I should do and not do. Keeping his selfish interest aside and looking at the larger picture or greater, his own good it may be or some other good, but it is always a greater good. So, the Gita reveals to us the determinisms of action out of which man must climb higher to a fourth poise other than Tamas, Raja, Sattva and that is the poise of Brahma Nirvana of the Gita where a person is dwelling in a state of inner freedom 
and yet he acts. So this is a great thing about the Gita that while action, through action you can achieve liberation. And when you are liberated, you can continue to act. So the ideal put forth before humanity is Jivan Mukta. That's where the Gita takes us. And then of course, um, Shubindu reveals, of course, Kurushetra is the battle of life and outer battle is a reflection of uh, the inner battle. And in our present evolution, man cannot escape it. It's inevitable. Why? Because what really is battle? Battle is a question of taking sides. That's what a battle is to start with. If you, There are two sides in a battle. <laughs> I mean, whether you like it or not, there are two sides in a battle. So, it means basically that often in our life, we have choices to make. Whether we can choose this or we can choose that. If you choose this, then that goes out. If you choose that, then this goes away. Now this creates a confusion and dilemma because there are plus here also and plus there also. Your morality, your ethics will say, oh, this also. That's the state of Arjuna. He says, if I fight, well, as a Kshatriya, I am supposed to fight. It's a righteous war thrust upon me. I can fight. But normally, we fight to ensure that the family, the clan, the nation was not yet there. But clan was there. That is uh, taken care of. But if I fight this war, I will destroy my own clan. So his dilemma is very valid. So where the choice is easy between this and that, life is simple. But there are times when you cannot choose whether I should be on this side or that side. Then what we should do? That's where Gita steps in. It says, you just choose Krishna. (laughs) Let him lead. (laughs) And Krishna is very naughty. That Shirobinda says in one of his aphorisms, of course we all know he is naughty. But he says, in the battle of Kurukshetra, he puts himself on the side of the nation unit, which is greater than the clan. But in future, he may put himself on the other side, not the nation, but the larger good of humanity. Shubhidus hints that, that exactly what happened in the German war, in the Second World War. And he says that what was the Second World War? It was Germany trying to find its own soul, but ended up discovering its vital power. So you see, in the Gita, he says, no, stand by, you know, if we interpret it like this way. But in the Gita, Sri Krishna is there to create a larger nation unit based on Dharma. But in the Mahabharata, in the modern Mahabharata, which is the Second World War, Sri Krishna, also known as Shurabindo, he takes the side of the allies, the world forces, which are which must open the way to evolution. So basically the Gita is not telling us do this, don't do this, take this side, that side. But it says take the side of Dharma and the purpose of taking this side is to assist the forward march of humanity. Lok Sangrahat. Now this is a very tricky thing because everybody who fights says, I am helping the forward march of humanity. So, first necessity as the Gita says is, find the Jnana. So, we see in the Gita, after explaining everything, it starts with Sankhya and Yoga. The Gita's first aspect is Jnana. What is, how to find knowledge. And this knowledge cannot be based on our ideas, opinion, viewpoint. There are people who started interpreting the Ukraine-Russia war as the Mahabharata war and the Second World War. 
things are not as simple as that. Shurvinder did not intervene in every war that was taking place, saying that here, you know, it's not like being a crusader. That's not what it is. There are wars which will change the destiny of the nations. The world will no more be the same. And in, of course, no war leaves the world the same. But in many ways, so that one has to have the vision. If there is no wisdom, there is no jnana, then talking about works is meaningless. That's what Sri Krishna says. So if you are just working, but we are not growing in knowledge, then it is meaningless. So the first insistence of the Gita is grow in knowledge. How to grow in knowledge? Don't go by appearances. First step. Second is withdraw inside, turn upward. Seek knowledge. Don't presume that I know. So when Sri Krishna tells Arjuna, Arjuna, be a jnani, turn inside, your discerning intellect. Then Arjuna says, you are again confusing me. You are asking me to fight. And then you are teaching me that, you know, turn inside, get jnana. He says, yes, jnana must be the basis of karma. And that's how we see, Gita is one scripture, Shurabinda says, which completely removes from us the reality of death. Actually, if you read just the second chapter of the Gita, you will be convinced if you read it with the heart. That's why people read it. It's a different thing that they read it and somehow they want to do Gita part. This Parayana. <laughs> it is okay. It is a mechanical thing. Fine. But when Sri was asked incidentally about Japa, he said if you do it mechanically, it hardly has an effect. Some effect, yes. But this idea that I'll do morning till evening, one day, much better take a resolve that I'll do whole year, little by little. It's the same thing that one day I'll keep fast. And seven days I'll be in a, a glutton. So there are people who do this, no? Now it is modern in thing about Savitri. Savitri Parayana. I'll do 24 hours from morning 6. Everybody has a time slot. Some people are sleepy, but they'll come. Because they have signed up. <laughs> Some are very happy. Midnight I am the one who will read. <laughs> it's alright. It is nothing. But that's not the real thing. Much better if one says that every day I fix a time when I'll read Savitri, maybe one passage. But I'll read it every day. That has an effect. That's what Mother says. Instead of fasting one day, you eat in moderation all the meals. <laughs> so the Gita is not to be read like that, but to be dwelt upon deeply. First thing is jnana. Otherwise one will read and reread, but it will have no impact. And jnana comes by turning within and turning upward. So this is the first step, discerning mind. After jnana works. So the next is the gospel of karma yoga. So how to do work? One, we have the jnana. Why should I do the work? So do the works as a sacrifice to the eternal. Before jnana, we are doing works for our own ego. For me, my family, my clan. That's what Arjuna says. I am doing work for, I must fight the battle because, uh, you know, the clan will become strong. That's why people fought the battles. It was the dharma. That's what we see in Bhishma. That is the difference between Bhishma and Arjuna. Bhishma is a good guy. But Bhishma says, I must fly and fight for the Kuru clan. That's my highest duty. I cannot swerve from there. Sri Krishna breaks that ideal. He says, there is something greater than the clan. That time it was the clan. Then it becomes much vaster. There is something greater even than humanity. Shubindu goes on to say that. There is a book, small book, Yoga and its Objects, where Shubindu in the beginning wrote, our yoga is not for ourselves alone, but for humanity. Later on he changed it. So a lot of people found it strange. 
then he says not for humanity but for the divine workings in humanity it's the divine will which must fulfill itself in humanity otherwise humanity means whatever humanity wants ignorantly you take care and you say i am doing the yoga of the gita with nishkam bhav every month i pick up my salary give it to an orphanage that's not what is meant by the gospel of the gita or karma you must have the gyana and the sign of a gyani the gita describes in great detail again it's a short overview so need not go into that then you do works why because now you have no personal motives you are freed from the sting of desire by turning inward and upward you are not attracted to the senses objects of the senses ordinarily in life we are drawn by the senses out to outer things and the mind plays upon those things takes the rasa of those things and it acts to acquire those things possess those things and when it gets it it is unhappy because it realizes it is not this which i was looking for when it doesn't get it is unhappy because it feels it is frustrated and baffled in its attempt so the gita tells us be wise turn inward <laughs> leave this kind of dab- dabbling and dealing with the world which where senses are weaving and desires are stimulating us so then why will we will act we will act to serve the divine as a sacrifice to the eternal and then whatever the divine gives will receive as prasad so he gives the new meaning the true meaning of the word yagya yagya means my actions are sacrificed to the divine therefore they will become more and more purified of desires and egoism and therefore i will not do it with the idea of getting certain goods but the highest and the greatest good and that is of the joy of offering ourselves to the divine what the divine gives me i will receive with humility and gratitude so nishkam karma is not that i will not take anything now that is another kind of dogma but i'll not covet after anything i'll not do it to want this or want that but if something comes because in the world play life is a yagya things will come to you receive them with gratitude hold them as a trustee use them under the wisdom and guidance of the divine that's what it means so that's how it speaks about works as sacrifice in great detail significance of sacrifice whom we should sacrifice all our life we are sacrificing parents wife husband children society but the only valid sacrifice is sacrifice to the divine and its only true purpose is ascension of consciousness so this what the gita reveals to us and then of course in this in the midst of all this gospel of works shobindo takes great length to describe the avatarhood there are four or five chapters dedicated to that so we can understand that avatarhood is a central conception of the gita it is also a central conception in shobindo's yoga you cannot do this yoga without the mother as simple as that and if you want to connect it with shurbindo well the mother is shurbindo's force <laughs> he himself has said that you cannot do it it's not like i will read from a book i'll read records of yoga synthesis of yoga and do it myself so in the gita avatarhood is a central conception and shurbindo takes great lengths to explain to us and he says that every avatar does that christ there is you know um, or rather he puts it like that that there is in buddhism for instance there is the um, you have you are supposed to surrender to dharma dharma 
to buddha and to sangham so this is the collective action and this is the individual action same thing with christ i am the door and i am the way so every avatar stands at the center as the gate and it is he who leads because the avatar comes to open the path towards the future and who those who are ready to receive him and grow full of him are the ones who bear the fruit of the avatars coming so in great length those three or four shlokas which are there in the gita shobindo gives it a great importance incidentally those who say gita is nothing but a reproduction of um, the upanishad must uh, reckon with this idea that neither the kind of bhakti that the gita speaks of nor the principle of avatarhood is there in the upanishads so yes many shlokas are there from the upanishads even some shlokas are as if bodily there and of course the essence of upanishads is there but there is a lot more which is there even the emphasis is changed upanishads except the isha most of them will ultimately lead towards a practice of meditation and the gita does talk about meditation but passingly its insistence is on finding the divine through works so there is a great emphasis on that what is the divine birth works divine worker and then another great emphasis on equality equality is the foundation of karma yoga for gyana we don't need so equality comes in karma yoga it doesn't come in gyan yoga gyani can turn within fine he will obviously develop a certain kind of aloofness and indifference from the world because he has broken the snare of appearances but he won't have equanimity the way gita equanimity is required when the outward action that time you have to bear the shock of contact with the world gyani may withdraw from the world world he may see as something unreal like a shadow passing by or he may see the divine presence in everything if he has really gone to that greater consciousness and yet whatever is happening is unimportant to him but a yogi works karma yogin works in the world so he cannot take that indifferent attitude equality is not indifference equality is a state where we are freed from preferences and egoistic stress of choices so that now we can act under the impulsion of the divine will as long as we have egoistic choices for a gyani it doesn't matter so at best a gyani will experience a passive equanimity so we have that famous letter of shurbindo to sahanadi who says that when somebody said against shurbindo and she got angry should she or should she not and there is a very beautiful letter where he speaks about the gita he says no doubt hatred and cursing are not the right attitude to start with but at the same time with your consciousness being clear freed from all this you must understand that here there is a work to do and so you have to take a stand and this stand should be in accordance with truth and to discover that truth you have to take that and then take and this truth which is manifesting in the world against which there are so many forces of falsehood which are arranged against it so you have to take a stand and be with the truth against all that is falsehood of course the gita shobindo says in the letter it is a general principle of action why because otherwise we may start saying that whatever i am doing is truth so it is understood that it is only through a first step is gyana then works and in the works equanimity so that we can express the divine will in the works when we act according to the divine will 
still we will act according to the three modes of nature. So the Gita makes it clear. If you fight the battle, after some time you will feel fatigued. Tamas has taken over. Time to time something may happen and momentarily certain reactions, responses may come up to you. Because still that rajas is. When you are having a dynamic impulsion, you need rajogun to act. But yet, you must understand that inwardly you are free. So the Gita leads us to a point where we are inwardly free from the grip of nature. Still when we act, it is nature which will come and it will you know, make us act in certain ways. And yet we must always remember that there is a greater divine will which is expressing itself through us. So this is the gist of the Karma Yoga first series. Second series, he brings out that there are two natures in us. One true nature, which is our soul nature. And then other things which cover it up. It's a very fascinating thing. A very important thing to remember. The true soul nature is our sabhava and sudharma. It's given to us by the divine. Act according to the sabhava and sudharma. And no sin is incurred by somebody who acts like that. Because that's a sudharma. Allow it to be covered and baffled by ambitions, fears, all these ideas, opinions, viewpoints. Then the action becomes confused. And that is the lower nature which covers it. Lower nature is like a smoke screen. It's, it is like a mist which covers the true nature. Don't get caught into it. You may still do the same action. You may still fight. But there is a difference in fighting under the stress of ambition and taking the same battle under the will and impulsion of the soul and the divine nature. And thereby, it takes us to that grand point. After jnana and works, it takes us to bhakti. What is that true bhakti? Is to give oneself utterly to the divine. Mad bhava, mad gata, be full of the divine. Act in the cautious of the divine. Brahma bhut, be so full of the divine that all actions become a spontaneous outflowing of the divine into creation in whatever way. Whatever way you are and act and speak and do, it is the divine who will act through you. That should be the state in which a human consciousness must rise. And then it reveals to us the science of the karmi yogin and the science of the bhakta. Because bhakta is no more fighting. He may fight in the battle, but because there is no personal hatred, enmity involved. So he is always carries within himself a uh, spirit of maitri and karuna. Because he is full of the divine consciousness. Even when he engages in battle, it is not with that sense of hatred, anger, animosity. These things are foreign to the temperament of the bhakta. So finally it leads us to the crown of all, which is complete surrender to the divine. In between we have this wonderful, because before bhakti, whom are we doing bhakti to? Now Krishna reveals himself who he is. What is that bhakti? Who is the divine? And it gives us the magnificent integral vision of the divine. He is the divine who is in all things, everywhere. And all things are in him. And he yet exceeds all. This triple aspect is revealed in the vision that Sri Krishna reveals to Arjuna. So we must always remember these three things. One, all is in the divine. So you see everything going inside him. He is on all beings. That we see that in every one he sees inside Sri Krishna. And yet he sees that light ineffable is exceeding in every direction. So he transcends the cosmos and creation. So he is the transcendent, universal and the immanent. 
and that's how one has to conceive the divine and therefore one can worship him anywhere and everywhere in every which way offer a stone a leaf a, a flower a prayer a song a dance a game a work even ahar and vihar he receives it with joy so it takes us to what true bhakti is it's not about doing bhajan kirtan and dancing and jumping but something which is much deeper and finally the gita speaks of how this whole creation is a becoming of the divine and in that how to see that divine in the becoming wherever you see that preeminence you will see the touch of the divine so it reveals the truth of the vibhutis who are nothing else but the divine presence in nature pushing it to exceeds its limits and so when it crosses its limits then you have the vibhuti the man who becomes an instrument of the divine action in the world to bring in a great change and finally the gita takes us to these basically in any choice we have these two sides the devik and the asurik so devik is what are the divine qualities god like qualities which must develop and what are the asurik qualities we must leave behind and then it takes us finally to all these three modes of action in great detail so that we can understand that the same action can be done from different motive forces at another place in bengali writing shubindu reveals the european mind takes gives a lot of emphasis on action that's our jurisprudence is but in indian thought it is not action but the inner motive and the inner state so the same action can be done dana for example tapa can be done in a dana can be done in a tamasic way keep giving mechanically it can be done in a rajasic way i am the giver and they must praise me acknowledge me i must get the food it can be done in a satvik way after discerning and it can be done in a spiritual way depending on what your state of consciousness so will be the fruit of the works so it gives a very beautiful idea about rebirth the doctrine of action the consequences of action and all these things and finally it takes us after all this to the supreme secret and that supreme secret is the final word of the gita that okay i have taught you too much given you much more than what you have asked <laughs> so but at the end i just want to tell you one thing whatever you may do be full of me people often say oh it says surrender to the divine aham to sarva papebhyo in gita one must always read it like like shurbindo also we pick up one sentence which is we don't read what is beginning what is what is following later on <laughs> and the context so often we see uh, this sentence surrender to the divine he will take care of everything yes but when man mana bhav mad bhakta madhya ji manaskur if you are living constantly with that fullness of the divine thinking of the divine man mana bhav mad bhakta worshiping the divine madhya ji ma namaskaro given to the divine bowing to him with utter humility then sarva dharman parityajya mahavekam sharanam raja if you are doing that obviously you will be so unmindful in fact of all these hundred trappings in which the asuric mind is caught hundred kinds of anxieties 
what will happen tomorrow what will happen because you are so full of the divine you're not thinking about yourself your petty self aaj khana kya khayenge most miserable what are we going to eat today what are we going to do today let's plan for tomorrow holidays this because you are full of the divine he will take care of everything and then when we surrender that is the wide surrender of the strong man of action sarva dharman parityaja mam ekam sharanam raja and then alone to the divine you deal with the world you can have psychic relations even shubhendra says but giving is only to the divine so then aham tva sarva papibhyo mokshishami mashcha so this is the core of the gita it's vishwabindu uh, reveals to us in essays on the gita it's one of the most wonderful books for anybody and everybody i'll just read a passage because we read something and i'll read from um, what is the purpose of avatarhood he does not come just to show some miracles that shubindu says um about the avatarhood that it is a deep philosophical and religious truth and an essential part of or step to the supreme mystery of all rahasyam uttamam then only this sarva dharman parityaja applies so you must understand if there were not this rising of man into the godhood to be helped by the descent of god into humanity the divine becomes human so that human can ascend and become divine it's not just about acting in a certain way and be very happy that i have discovered the principle of action it's to grow into god consciousness become even as he that's why he becomes human avatarhood for the sake of the dharma would be an otious phenomena if this were not there since mere right mere justice or standards of virtue can always be upheld by the divine omnipotence through its ordinary means the divine did not need to come down on earth to settle the score with the mogal empire when the time came he just created shivaji one shivaji was enough <laughs> when the time came one guru gobind singh was enough to take care of that he didn't do that but he becomes human when the time comes when human beings can grow into that consciousness and then of course he reveals to us what really is dharma dharma is not how we understand in its outer and the entire thing that you know what is the work for which the avatar comes we often think in in outer terms outward action and shubindu reminds us the outward action of the avatar is described in the gita as the restoration of the dharma when from age to age the dharma fades languishes the avatar comes and raises it again and then he says dharma is a word which has an ethical and practical a natural and philosophical and a religious and spiritual significance and it may be used in any of these senses exclusive of the others in a purely ethical a purely philosophical or a purely religious sense ethical it me ethical it means the law of right righteousness the moral rule of conduct or in a still more outward and practical significance social and political justice or even simply the observation of the social law 
If used in this sense, we shall have to understand that when unrighteousness, injustice and oppression prevail, the avatar descends. But then he goes on to say that this is not the whole truth. Dharma is both that which we hold to and that which holds together our inner and outer activities. You may do religious activity, but you may be held by the ego and you may be holding on to the ego. So it's no more dharma. In its primary sense, it means a fundamental law of our nature which secretly conditions all our activities. And in this sense, each being, type, species, individual, group has its own dharma. So we have the swadharma, we have the dharma of the uh, person who is hungry and has nothing to eat. There is the dharma of the child, dharma of the elderly, dharma of the politician. Shubhinda uses the word political dharma, dharma of an age. So, yep. so dharma is a very wide term. Secondly, there is the divine nature which has to develop and manifest in us. And in this sense, dharma is the law of the inner workings by which that grows into our being. Dharma is the path through which man becomes divine, grows into the divine, as simple as that. Because that is the secret truth which holds us. So anything which helps us to grow into the divine becoming is dharma. It was dharma for Buddha to walk away, leaving his family behind under the divine afflatus, carrying within himself the anguish and suffering of the world. But if a person runs away from all this because he feels, oh, this is too much, let me become a Buddhist monk, he may be doing a dharma. So it's not the action but the inner movement. Thirdly, there is the law by which we govern our outgoing thought and action and our relations with each other so as to help best both our own growth and that of the human race towards the divine ideal. So such should be our life and conduct that whatever we do, think, act must help ourselves and everyone in the collective growth and march of mankind. So all this he reveals to us beautifully. And whatever stands against it is adharma. You may belong, often you know we see nowadays this religious war, people fighting for religion, that's not the issue. In India, when all this was being said, everybody is the same religion. <laughs> They're all Hindus. They believed in God. Sometimes the same God. Ravana was even a bhakta. So dharma and adharma is not to be taken from that standpoint. It has to be seen from another standpoint, which is trans-religious, trans-ethical, trans-moral. And ultimately, it is whatever helps us outwardly, inwardly, in expressing the divine truth within us and helping humanity and ourselves to grow toward the divine. That is dharma. And so he gives us a very wide law of action. So, okay, avatar comes, goes away, Krishna gave. You know, this is important to understand that there are two Krishnas that we know. One is Krishna of Vrindavan. The other is Krishna of the Gita. The Krishna of the Gita gave the Gita. So we should not try to, you know, mix uh, the two. So when Shurabindu was asked that which Krishna you were more in relation with? And he says the Krishna of the Gita. So his commentaries on the Gita carry a Though Shubhita gave great importance to the Bhagavad Puran, which is more about the Krishna of the Vrindavan. But he did not uh, actually write a commentary on that. 
he wrote a commentary on the gita it's the authentic and the mother has said its action is still continuing and it will yet liberate humanity but what is required of us to be thus liberated by the gospel of the gita and by default by the coming of the avatar what are we supposed to do often people ask you have been there and the mother has done everything so what are we supposed to do are we supposed to do something or not and we'll hear people yes we are supposed to meditate in this way we are supposed to work for 6 hours in the ashram department or we are supposed to do this none of this something else or all of this but something else <laughs> what is it that we are supposed to do so that the fruits of the avatars coming we may receive the inner fruit of the avatars coming so it applies as much to shurbinda and the mother as the avatars of the supermind as to shri krishna the inner fruit of the avatars coming is gained by those who learn from it the true nature of the divine birth and the divine works why shurbinda and the mother came to earth why shri krishna came that's why mother says there are those who just have faith that the divine sacrificed in matter they are redeemed we may find it absurd but well less absurd than many of the absurdities of life this makes logical sense if you know that the divine came and touched earth and he came to transform this earthly life this itself is the first step that's why reading their lives in its true significance and by default when you distort it and make it something very common place and ordinary like people do with krishna's life and of course they try to do with shubindu's life then you are actually playing the asura's role so those first thing is they must learn from it the true nature of the divine birth and the divine works first and who second it's not mentioned second <laughs> and who comma growing full of him in their consciousness and taking refuge in him with their whole being manmaya mamupashita purified by the realizing force of their knowledge and delivered from the lower nature attained to the divine being and divine nature madbhava so divine comes and goes but we must know it is the divine who came and manifested himself with this purpose and then take complete refuge in him be full of him grow full of him the avatar comes to reveal the divine nature in man above this lower nature and to show what are the divine works free unegoistic he is describing divine work divine work has nothing to do with outward action you may be anywhere in the world even in a temple or a monastery and yet egoistic you may be anywhere in the world and yet doing divine works how free what how do you understand it's a divine work free means not bound by any of these ideas concepts and opinions and egoisms unegoistic disinterested this was i have often told when i read in the prayer of the mother when uh, i got the chance to become secretary of one of these centers and i opened a prayer of the mother and she says even in doing the work that you feel most represents the divine work for you should be disinterested i got a shocker of my life i said no i'm stuck what does disinterested mean so the dictionary didn't help me but she helped you have to turn to her only disinterested oh i am doing god's work i'll push it through this way because i am right no sir 
If tomorrow I have to leave that entire work, one more must not say, see, I was doing God's work and they removed me. You should be ready to leave the think one moment. One person I have seen like the outside world, Talwar, R.K. Talwar, who, uh, you know, uh, believed in the gospel of the Gita fully and was a devotee of Mother and Shurabindo. So he was the governor of RBI. When the then prime minister asked him to do something which he felt was not right, he refused. People asked him, how do you take decisions? He said, nothing but I stay quiet and then I feel this what the mother wants of me and I do it. Then, within hours he was asked, either you resign or face an inquiry. He quietly resigned. And when he was going, people asked him, he was made to resign. That, uh, you know, it's a very sad thing. He said, no. What is sad about it? Oh, you have to just hang your boots now. He said, no, divine, I have been wanting to go to Pondicherry and serve the Divine Mother directly. And she has made an opportunity. What is there? And he came here. He lived like uh, any of us. (laughs) He did not join the ashram. He said, I will serve the way I can serve you. (laughs) So he opened a consultancy, earned a lot of money and the entire money he used to give. That was his way. He used to feel guided. He said, otherwise you'll send me to dining room where I have to work. <laughs> this it was. <laughs> he said, I know what mother, how I can best serve. So this was the man freed of all these opinions. Tomorrow he had to leave his work. He left that work and came. So that's how the divine worker is. Not attached to anything, even to the work that he thinks is the expression of the divine in him. Even if he is removed from that next day, is fine. So, unegoistic. Full of divine, impersonal, universal, not just for any personal gains. Full of the divine light, the divine power and the divine love. He comes as the divine personality which shall fill the consciousness of the human being, personality. And replace the limited egoistic personality so that it shall be liberated out of ego into infinity and universality. Out of birth into immortality. Just imagine, if you think all the time about mother, mother, what space will be there for the ego? (laughs) Ego will be crushed out, not knowing where to go. He comes to lead them. In whatever way men accept love and take joy in God, in that way God accepts, loves and takes joy in man. If you want to fight, he says, okay, come, let's fight. He will take joy. End result will be same. But he missed the delight of his embrace. Yo yatha maam prapadyante tathya seva bhajameham. Namaste.